Good morning, happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. So I had a great, great weekend. Um, my buddy Microsoft of neuro coffee fame sent me that. So these are chips that say the intensive and 16% for those of you that are 16 percenters out there. Very exciting. It's also um, metallic, so it sticks to my magnet that I have on my desk. So that's kind of exciting so it doesn't roll away. So anyway, um, so rolling to Monday with all the excitement from the weekend, I thought we'd just dive into a couple of Q&As that are similar. And it seems like uh, people are, are um, really focused in on, on wide infrastructural angles and questions associated with such. So, so let's dig in. Um, this is from Michael, and Michael says, I heard you say that you would side plank a wide infrasternal angle client. Can you go into details to why and what effect it has on the ribcage? Absolutely, I can. In fact, let me go get my homemade ribcage. So spine, somewhere around the fifth rib, sternum, first rib, just to give you a frame of reference. But when we're looking at a wide ISA, we're looking at that shape right there. So they are wider side to side than they are deep. And so if I was to do a, a typical plank under those circumstances where I'm looking down the line in, in that respect, because of the way that the diaphragm descends with a wide ISA, if I lay them or if I put them in prone and I put them in symmetrical, I can actually reinforce the width position. So, so they're already wide side to side. And if I put them in prone under those circumstances, I don't really affect a, a favorable change in thorax shape. Now, if I take you to your side, so if I start you in a, in a wide position here and I take you to your side, all of the internal organs will fall because of gravity towards the towards the downside. And so that gives me an enhancement in an anterior posterior direction right away. I also create a compressive strategy on the on the downside. And so that means I'm going to create an expansive strategy on the upside. And so now I get a, a situation where it looks kind of like that. So I actually teach the thorax to expand on one side and then when I flip them over and I do the other side, I teach expansion on that side. And that's usually the best way to make the shape change in a favorable direction when you have somebody that's in a wide infrastructure angle that I want to increase their anterior posterior diameter. It's much easier to do on one side versus the other. And so that's why we would choose a side plank versus something in, in prone. Um, as far as uh, you, you ask for progressions and regressions, it's beyond the scope of this type of an interaction, but there's a gajillion of them. In fact, I posted a couple of really, really simple progressions in a low oblique sit and high oblique sit that you can, you can reference on uh, Instagram and YouTube. So, so check those out. But, but you know, all you got to do is go through YouTube and you can look at any number of progressions. The goal when you're working with a client is just to make sure that you're putting in a position to be successful. So whatever your intent is, then you got to put them in a, in a situation where they can execute and be effective. And so then we're always going to test, intervene, retest scenario, however you determine that to be. So hopefully, Michael, that answers your question in regard to, to the shape change of the thorax with the wide ISA and why we would use the side plank. Yeah. 
Rondell was on the uh, the free Q and A call that Mike Robertson and I did to introduce the uh, the update to the IFAS University, and he had a question in regard to the um, expansion of, of of the thorax. So we're still talking about anterior posterior expansion, but he wanted to make the comparison between the narrow ISA and and the wide ISA, and and I did make a comment that I would typically start with my my wide ISAs face up and my narrow ISAs face down um, because of, once again, the shape of the diaphragm. So the, so the diaphragms are shaped totally differently in, in these two, two archetypes. And so, so with my narrows, I'm gonna have this, this sort of like increased AP diameter and a narrow side to side. And with my wides, I'm going to have a, an increased side to side diameter and, and, and narrow anterior posterior. And because of that, the diaphragm is actually in a different shape. And, and so we have to respect that. So once again, if I was to take a, uh, a wide ISA and I put them in a, in a prone position or an inverted position, so hips higher than shoulders in, in prone, um, I, I may get an effect of an anterior posterior chain, change rather, um, but it's probably not going to be as significant as it would be if I put them in supine um, to take advantage of the load of the guts on the posterior aspect of, of the thorax as far as promoting a favorable shape change to the diaphragm and then working it unilaterally. So let me give you an example of what that might look like. If we did a good old fashioned glute bridge and then brought one knee to the chest and so we're doing a unilateral bridge and what we're actually doing there is we're promoting a favorable shape change in the thorax we're promoting a favorable position uh, for the diaphragm to achieve a position of, of normal exhalation, and I'm promoting unilateral compression and, and opposing expansion. So I, I get a big bang under those circumstances. That's why I would tend to start the, the wider ISAs in a supine position and drive some form of unilateral uh, positioning. With the narrows, with the face down, because of the shape of their diaphragm, they actually benefit from the load um, of, of the guts moving superiorly and anteriorly. So think about an inverted lazy bear position where I have the, the knees elevated in quadrupeds, so the hips are higher than the shoulders, and then I drop them down to the elbows. So now we have head lower, lower than hips, and so now we have a much more favorable position for that shape of the diaphragm and for, the, for increasing the width of, of the, the diameter of the thorax. So that's why we would choose those two strategies. Um, and that's why there's a little bit of difference between the, the wide ISAs and the narrow ISAs. If you're ever on the fence and you're not sure which way to go, do something. So again, it's always test, intervene, retest, and that's going to provide you the guidance. So if you're successful in your intervention, then you can you can move forward. If it if it's not successful, then try the opposing strategy because sometimes these things are confusing. Sometimes people are are very close to to being on the fence, so to speak, as to where they are predominantly wide or or, or narrow. Um, off topic from the from the ISA concept, I got a I got a question from. Uh, Sasha and, and Sasha asks, um, I do have a question pertaining to the shoulder going into extension being an external rotation. And he's, he's talking in regards to, to, to arm swing and gait. And, and he said, would this fly in the face of what is commonly taught? Um, one, I, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to what is commonly taught um, other than the fact that it is to, to um, create questioning as to what is really going on. But if you think about how the body moves during uh, gait, so if I was to, to swing my left arm forward and my right arm back, I actually orient my entire thorax into this right-facing position. And so, so 
what people would, would tend to recognize going on at the shoulder would be shoulder extension. Um, and extension would typically be an internal rotation activity. However, when you think about the reorientation of the thorax and then the arm swing, I'm actually moving towards abduction, which is an external rotation measure. And so that's why that shoulder is actually moving towards external rotation rather than internal rotation. So that's a, that's a quick and easy answer for that. Um, as, to, as to how it's being taught, I, I think you're allowed your own perspective um, as long as the, the story fits the evidence and as long as it's a useful model. The question then becomes is, is um, how effective is that model in, in other circumstances and other contexts? The goal is to try to be as coherent as possible. My, my position would be that we're moving that shoulder into a position of, of external rotation during arm swing because of the reorientation of the thorax. So um, Sasha, I hope that answers your question. Uh, have a great, great Monday and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand. And it is perfect, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. I gotta dive right into the Q&A, got a busy day. Um, just got off a mentorship call, got another call coming up. So <clears throat> I'm squeezing this one in, in between. And I got two questions that came through that are very, very similar. Um, they kind of build on, on one another. So Rachel uh, sent me a question and, and basically she sort of reviewed what she saw from her perspective as the orientations of our typical archetypes of the wide and the narrows um, that we refer to with the ISA, IPA relationships. And then she wanted to know why we would see these additional superficial compressive strategies arise and then Zhang sent me a question that, that says, okay, so we do have these compressive strategies. Is there a sequence to them? And then how do we resolve these things? And so what I wanna do is do a quick review. We'll use the pelvis as a representation because it's really, really easy to see. And then we can talk about, about how these arise and then what to do. So if we look at our two archetypes, we have our, our wide ISA IPA relationship. So we'll use that as our representation there. <clears throat> and I'm gonna have the nutated sacrum that goes along with that. And so then if I have a narrow IPA, I have counter nutation. So that's the base of the sacrum coming back in, in that relationship there, if we look at just the, the one side. And so what we have to respect is that this is all based on my ability to stand and walk on two legs. And so if I have these expansion and compressive strategies going on, it creates a shift in my center of gravity. So the whole premise behind these strategies is for me to maintain my balance. And so if I'm looking at, say, the, the wide representation, so I have an, exp an expanded position of the outlet of the pelvis, which is a nutated sacrum. So you can see that as I nutate the sacrum, I get a posterior expansion here. 
that posterior expansion is actually gonna push me backwards. Same thing's happening in the thorax, so I get a posterior expansion, posterior expansion, I will fall backwards. So my initial compensatory strategy that will superimpose on top of the archetype will be a compressive strategy from posterior to anterior in a wide, and the opposing strategy is gonna happen in the narrow. So, so if, I've, if I'm counterintuitive here, I'm gonna get an anterior expansion which is gonna throw me forward. So I'm gonna compress from the front. So, so there's the big difference between your two archetypes in regards to how these strategies are, are layered on. So if, if my structural bias puts me at one end of the spectrum, I will always have to superimpose some other compensatory strategy depending on the context with, within which I am performing. So the, the higher physical stress or the demands of the activity, or if my structure is so biased towards one end of the spectrum, I will have to superimpose some other superficial strategy that helps me maintain my balance. These will change and these will fluctuate depending on, the, on like I said, the physical stresses and, and the context. And so over time, I will learn to use these strategies. But what's gonna happen because each of these layers of strategy is compressive in nature, exhale-based, I will start to lose ranges of motion. And so this is why the extremity ranges of motion become so important because what they will do is they will allow us to identify what those compressive strategies are. The compressive strategies typically are bottom up because of the way gravity works. So everything rests down in the pelvis or down in the thorax as we think about expanding the lung volume, the lungs are gonna fill from the bottom up. And so that's why we see these layers sort of accumulate upward and we'll see the losses of range of motion upward um, as well. And so this is why the extremity motions become so important. They let us know that we do not have this full excursion of breathing. We do not have full relative motions available to us. And this either creates problems for people that are trying to be more adaptable and to move um, through their full excursion, or we use these intentionally to reduce the degrees of freedom or reduce the relative motions to produce a performance related outcome. So hopefully Zhang and Rachel, I hope that gives you an idea of what we're talking about with these compressive strategies, how they show up in the two archetypes. If you're going to try to alleviate these, yes, you're going to reverse engineer it. So invert the problem. The, the client or the patient or the athlete shows you the representation that they are utilizing at the time. If I'm trying to make a change, I have to strip them away in the reverse order that they would show up. So again, if they, if they arise from the bottom up, I'm gonna strip them away from the top down. So again, hopefully that answers your question, guys. Have a great Tuesday, and I'll see you guys later. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Got a very busy Wednesday, so. I want to dive right into this Q&A because it's kind of a, a cool one uh, because I posted a couple of videos on Instagram recently about activities to offset a left shift of the squat and a right shift of the squat and it produced a lot of questions. And I think even Tim on Instagram asked if I could give him a little bit of a chessboard, so we'll try to do that too. But let's talk through this because what we're dealing with is normal squat mechanics and then we're, we're superimposing some altered initial conditions which produces a left shift or a right shift in the squat. So let's let's go through these. Let me grab the pelvis. 
So typically we're gonna see this with somebody that's biased towards a wide ISA. And so when I say that, it's like, it doesn't have to be the extreme. It's just somebody that does not close the ISA very well. And so they're gonna have this tendency to have this, this mutated position of the sacrum as, as part of their starting mechanics. So if we look through normal squat mechanics at the top where we would have the hip near zero degrees of extension, we're gonna be towards an inhaled position. So it's gonna be an excellently rotated position at the hip. As I pass to the sticking point, that's our primary internal rotation position. And so we're gonna see a widening. We'll see a widening of the IPA and internal rotation of the hip through the middle. And then at the end, we're gonna see the, the of hip flexion. We're gonna see the re-external rotation, if you will, um, of the pelvis. So, so we get sacral movement and ilial movement at the top of, of hip flexion, which would be the bottom of the squat. So those are our normal kinks. Go external rotation, internal rotation, external rotation. Okay. So if I disturb those in any way, I'm going to see something happen in the squat. So in 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 most cases, what we're going to see, I'm going to tip, tip it this way. If I start in this nutated position for, for the wide, but I have a compressive strategy in this upper posterior left. So I'm holding the left sacral base forward. What's going to happen is I'll get a tip of the left side of the pelvis that goes forward more than the right. And this steals external rotation um, from this hip. But because I'm a, a biased towards a wide, I preserve my, my internal rotation. Now, as I squat, what happens is, is I'm, I'm, I have to take advantage of my, my internal rotation as I get there. And I, because I can't re-externally rotate as I pass through the sticking point, the sacrum is gonna stay biased to be turned to the right. I have the same strategy going on in the thorax. So essentially what I've done is I've turned the whole axial skeleton to the right, but my, my femurs, my hips are facing straight ahead. So I've got that kind of a squat. So as I squat, my, my straight down is actually back into the left. And so that's why you see the left hip shift. Okay, now let's take a, another layer of strategy D. I start from that same compressive strategy that I saw with the left shift, but now I'm gonna superimpose an anterior compressive strategy on the left side in addition to that. So what happens is I get a shape change around the acetabulum, which is actually gonna turn it a little bit. So I actually pick up concentric orientation of the external rotation muscles right off of the trochanter here, but that's gonna bring the femur and the sacrum a little bit closer together on this side. And so I get an oblique tilt of, of, the, of the pelvis in this case. And now I've tipped my right side a little bit farther forward than the left side. So that's what the orientation looks like. So I'm closing this space right here and this, that will push it forward on the left. Now on the right side, uh, I'm, I still have uh, the, the right side tipped forward. So remember I've lost my hip extra rotation and so as I, as I squat under these circumstances, this stays forward, and then I take advantage of the IR that I do have, and I open up that space right here. So this space is going to open up. So if I create space there, that's the direction that I'm gonna go. So as I sit down, because I've got more compressive strategy on this side holding this forward, this side stays open more as I squat, and then I'm going to shift over into that right space. Now, in this case, I'm definitely gonna have a decreased left straight leg raise, decreased left hip flexion. In the first case with the left shift, I'm gonna have a normal straight leg raise in most cases, but still lose the end range hip flexion. So keep that in mind. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a taste. Um, I'm sure there'll be more questions in that regard.
because it does require a little bit of complexity in regards to the compressive strategies that we're using, but um, this should get you started. So feel free to ask questions. I'll be posting this up on YouTube as well. So you'll be able to, to access that there and we can clarify things as we go. Cause like I said, I know I threw a lot at you at once here and uh, I'd be happy to go through it again. Have a great Wednesday and I'll see you guys later. And we're on. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand. And hey, Dr. Mike. Yes. Hang on. It is perfect. Scenario yet, but like people coming off of like uh, ankle sprains, I guess I never really gave much consideration or thought towards like retraining of balance, or like balance, uh, single leg stance. If you're working with, say, a, a basketball player, right there's going to be elements of, of 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 context there that you know there's going to be positions and activities that he's going to need to be able to access and so everything becomes graded exposure at some point in time everything's multifactorial right when you look at an outcome whether we're looking at changing body composition or raising some performance level right it, it is good to have that foundation so you have some sort of mental reasoning behind why you're going to do something I think that looking at people who are like incredible practitioners that they can overcome like base scientific knowledge due to a tremendous amount of reps and paying attention. Yeah. Um, but I think in order to try to move things forward, that it's the understanding of these basic scientific mechanisms that allow you to then come up with reasonable strategies to test. Like what would be the mechanism to change this? So, so filtering it through a number of mental models allows you to ask a question and then that creates the experiment. And then you observe what happens at the end of the experiment. And if I can ask a better question, then I can come up with a better experiment. And then my observations improve based on what I did as an intervention and then what the outcome was. I think an understanding, like a, like a basic understanding like physiology and stuff can help, like help put up bumpers for you. You know what I mean? Uh, in terms of like decision-making. So like, yeah. for example, like I, I would never try, like if you turn around, you're like, oh, you have to work with this. What's the, what's the ideal biological profile for a basketball player? You're know, like, I don't know, right? So like, what, what do you turn around and do? It's like, you just try to focus on the things that you can see in front of you. like. 10 yards, uh, 10 yard sprint or vertical jump or, uh, you know, teat, agility T test, whatever you may choose. And then the bio, like the biological adaptations will just happen organically underneath the, uh, like what, what you're trying to help fuel. Uh, but like, I know, for example, like knowing that like a uh, heavy glycolytic workout would, you know, takes a toll on the system, like that, knowing that from like a, I'm taking like a physiology course might help me uh, come to that, like might help me integrate that sooner than just trial and error and watching and being like, Oh shit. I see that every time we do this heavy uh, 400 meter repeats that the next day they're fried for two days. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that in some regards it can, it can help put bumpers uh, up and, and keep you safe. It provides you a foundation of reasoning. Right. And again, because we're working in probabilities, it may help you narrow some probabilities. Right. So, but having more models to use and to be able to filter information through allows you to narrow those probabilities much more quickly. Right. And, and that's why we can't negate 
that element of, of, of science, right? Always improving our understanding of that. Like I said, it just helps us make better choices, select better interventions, and then hopefully make a better outcome. Hey, well, if you had an 18-year-old walk into your gym and you had a 65-year-old walk into your gym, if you applied the same thing to those people, right, you would yeah. not expect the same outcome. But those same people will quickly read a research abstract and say, you know, two grams of X compound yielded seven pounds of fat loss in 12 weeks, done, that works, right? With, with paying no respects to who it was, mm -hmm. what else they were doing, you know, who that population is, the whole like blood sugar, weight loss supplement industry is all based on people with diabetes and their physiology is woefully different. But that same topic, right? With, with people that may have a belief that their diagnostics does not back up, right? Oh, but yeah. they're, they're still feeling something, right? And yep. like, you still have to validate their concerns. It's, it's, and we've used this phrase incessantly, is meeting them at their story. So, so you never negate what, what their belief system is because the minute you do that, now you've, now you've hit a barrier, right? Now your ability to establish rapport and communicate with this person has, has been negatively affected, right? Because now you, you basically told them that, that, that anything that they believe is invalid. So in, um, it's a great strategy, like the number one rule of, of improv. And you know, Bill, this was actually the end of thinking in bets too, is the idea that you never say no. So if you right. do improv, you never say no. All you say is you say yes and, right? And I think we, you know, because you basically are accepting whatever they're saying and you're going to add to it. Whereas I think oftentimes our default in the coaching scenario is yes, but, right? So it's like you, you throw in the yes to like make them feel like you're listening, even though you're not. And then you say, but this is actually what's going on. And training yourself instead to say yes, and, you know, like, yes, you might still have arthritis despite everything showing not. And I still think we should look at X, Y, Z. You know, I fail every day, every day. But, but when I fail, I don't look at it as, as the negative. I just look at it as another piece of information. It's like, oh, so the next time I see that and I do this, I have to expect this as one of the probabilities, right? And then so if I do an intervention, let's just say that, that I, I had 10 similar situations and seven out of those 10, I was considering myself successful because I got the result that I want and then 30% I didn't. I have to respect that 30%. But now I'm weighing it and I'm, I'm like saying, okay, most of the time when I do this, this is actually a good choice. So I'm going to do this. That's how you make the, the, the good decision. It's a process. So you might not get the outcome that you wanted, but it was the right thing to do. Because you start patting yourself on the back when you're successful and then you start beating yourself up when you're not. Mm -hmm. Either one is helpful, right? And then you're still left with whatever outcome that you had. So you just make the next logical step, right? You use your decision-making process and that evolves over time as well. So you get better at making decisions um, because you develop the process of making the decision, but you're still going to have variable outcomes because you're dealing with complexity. There's multiple, there's multiple answers to every question in, in a complex situation. This is a really deep conversation for a Thursday morning, fellas.
Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand. And yes, it is perfect. Okay, a busy Friday. Very excited, lots of things to do today. Lots of people to talk to, which is always exciting. So yeah, this whole situation has just provided opportunities galore. So um, I'm taking, trying to take full advantage of it anyway, and I hope you guys are too. Getting some good work done, maybe getting some studying done, maybe um, working on some relationships perhaps that you, you haven't been able to do. So, so please take advantage of, of this opportunity. I got a message from um, Charlie Reed. Charlie is an uh, amazing coach. I suggest you, you look him up. I think he is at charliereedfitness.com so so go go check him out um he's also an amazing guitar player but that's beside the point um i'm just jealous about that part but um charlie sent me a message this morning and, and hit on a, a topic that i'm i'm very fond of and i think that everybody works from from some sort of model but i think that the clarifying that model on a regular basis is really important and so one of the ways that you want to do that is, is by literally drawing out your model. So you can actually visualize it, see it, and identify where you might have weaknesses or gaps or, or where you need to, to develop an aspect of it. And I've tried many different ways to do this. And, and so I'm a, I'm a paper guy, I'm a paper and pen guy. So I don't know if you guys can see that, but that's a representative of one of my maps. I got two cameras going here, so bear with me. Um, so, but, but, but Charlie's uh, a tech, tech guy and he says, hey, you know, I, I appreciate that whole analog approach to the whole thing, but there's, there's those of us that, that want to use something that's a little bit more technical. And so, so Charlie mentioned some apps that I wanted to throw out for you. Um, Charlie mentioned XMind and MindDomo. I have not used these, but they look very similar to a lot of the other uh, mind mapping software. I have used MindJet in the past. And so I was talking with Mike Russell this morning and he mentioned MindJet as well. So he still uses that. They're all useful. Um, they do. There's always a bit of a learning curve whenever you're learning a new app, but all of these are, are very similar in structure from what I can tell. Um, I'm not an app guy. If you are an app guy, though, XMind, MindDomo, and MindJet would be the, 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 the three that have come recommended to me from other people. So, so try those out. So if you're more of a technical person, um, go there. But regardless, draw out your models. Draw out your models because it will, it will, like I said, it will help you identify the gaps, the weaknesses, and it will refine your thought processes. And, and the more effective that you can be in that regard, the, the more successful you'll be with your interventions and your outcomes. It'll help you narrow the probabilities of, of what you're working, working with because we are in the gray, we are in complexity, and, and we have to have a representative model. The better your model, the better you're gonna be. Okay, um, I got a question from Reggie. So, so Reggie is asking specifically for a quarantine edition workout for wide ISAs. I thought this was, this was kind of a, a neat little question because it allows us to go through some, some thought process and then some, some recommendations as well. And so Reggie gives me a limited uh, array of equipment that, that he's kind of stuck with it at home. And he's looking for uh, activities that will help him expand posterior lower thorax and, and, and upper thorax. So when we're looking at a wide ISA, 
um, one of the earlier compensatory strategies after after the the compensatory inhalation against the exhaled axial skeleton will be that the upper dorsal rostral. So the upper back area will will compress. That that's going to follow in in a sequence. If you're dealing with a wide ISA that has compression below the level of scapula, so posterior lower rib cage, posterior lower pelvis, then you are much much deeper into um, the compensatory strategies. So we have to be a little bit more selective in regards to our activities. So let's borrow some information from, from the quadruped research. And if you look at the way quadrupeds weight bear when they're in single leg stance versus double leg stance, in a, in a double leg stance quadrupedal position, what you're gonna look at is you're gonna see the compressive strategies that we talk about with wide ISAs show up there. When they go to single leg stance, the support leg still shows the compressive strategy, but we get expansion on the opposing side. So that's why we have this recommendation, um, generally speaking, that wide ISA should typically avoid bilateral symmetrical exercises because it reinforces the compressive strategies. So right away, we take anything that looks the same on both sides off the table. The first, the first rule, of, of decision making is don't do stupid things. And so we wanna eliminate interference. So anything that we do bilaterally that is symmetrical is, is going to be a big question mark in regards to, to training a wide ISA if the goal is to recapture our movement options. Now, if we're gonna do something unilateral, then we got a lot of choices here. We've got all sorts of one-armed activities. Now, the thing that we're gonna to have to, to be concerned with is, is we want to reinforce the ability to turn, which means we have compressive and expansive strategies to deal with here. So if I was to perform, a, say, a one-arm dumbbell press, like a floor press, and I compressed both shoulders into the floor, as you typically would, say, for a bench press if you were doing it with a bar, then even if I'm pressing with one arm, I'm still using the bilateral symmetrical strategy. So I wanna start thinking about more of a, of a reaching type of activity to, to finish my press. Um, if I'm gonna think about pulling activities, I'm gonna think about maintaining posterior expansion as I pull on the pulling side. So the nice way that I can induce that is with staggered stances or asymmetrical stances or split stances. So right away, I'm, I'm eliminating the, the influence of that bilateral symmetrical strategy. So, so Reggie, keep that in mind. Um, if you look at some of the videos that I posted, I believe I did a, a glute bridge alternating press, which is very, very useful um, because it, it is asymmetrical. It's also inverted, so you get your posterior lower rib cage expansion, posterior lower pelvic expansion under those circumstances, which is great. And then I think yesterday I posted an, an asymmetrical push-up. So, so again, if I use an offset orientation where I have, say in a push-up, I have one hand elevated versus the other hand on the floor, then I've also created that turning strategy that becomes very, very useful for, for wide ISAs. Um, anything in, in a side support position, also very useful for wide ISAs because I get compression on one side, expansion on the other, and I also get an anterior posterior expansion. So when you're talking about 
the compression in the upper dorsal rostral area, and even uh, the, the anterior compression when I'm in that side support position, like a, like a side bridge, a side plank, a T push-up variation may also be useful. Um, a, an arm bar where you're rolling into the, to the sideline position, also very useful under those circumstances to create the anterior posterior expansion, the unilateral compressive strategy, and then the unilateral expansive strategy. So Reggie, I hope that gives you some suggestions and some ideas. Um, draw out your models. Have a great Friday. I'm gonna finish my coffee and then I'm gonna uh, go grab a workout. You guys have a great weekend.